0: I'm Brian Santo, E.E. Times Editor-in-Chief. You're listening to E.E. Times On Air. And this is your weekly briefing for the week ending June 18th. John Glenn is one of America's most enduring heroes. He was a top aviator in two wars, a record-setting test pilot and a U.S. senator, but the achievement that he will always be remembered for was that he was the first American to orbit the Earth, That's a distinction with qualifications. He was merely the third American in space, and he was only the third person to orbit the Earth. And yet, in the history of space exploration, Glenn is as famous as the first man in space, Yuri Gagarin, and as famous as the first man to set foot on the Moon, Neil Armstrong. 60 years later, it's still important to understand why a guy who was third has such an enduring legacy. A new book called Mercury Rising examines why John Glenn's journey into space was so important. In this episode, we speak with Jeff Shessel, author of Mercury Rising. Not only does Schessel put Glenn's achievements in perspective, in researching his book, he learned that Glenn's flight was far more perilous than anyone had ever let on. Before we get to John Glenn in the space race, here's a rundown of some of the articles we've published in E.E. Times this week. Electric vehicles are still somewhat exotic. If everything goes according to plan, they'll be commonplace in as little as three years. If everything goes to plan, there's a lot of work to be done in a short amount of time. We just launched a package of stories on some of the infrastructure requirements to support electric vehicles, including advanced testing equipment, new charging stations, improved battery technology, including two options we haven't heard too much about before this year supercapacitors and hybrid supercapacitors. Two weeks ago, the U.S. passed a bill that allocates $52 billion to help support the U.S. domestic semiconductor industry. Now, it's beginning to map out the details of the plan. For starters, U.S. economic planners say, there will be no handouts. This is co-investment. Read our story on what that means. Also, an article examining the rumor that Intel might be interested in buying sci 5 Another examining the ongoing fallout from the solar winds hack that infiltrated U.S. government computer systems. And a caution about curtailing the use of toxic materials in electronic systems. For all of these stories and more industry news and analysis, visit our website at eetimes.com. If you reach this episode through our podcast webpage, there are links to all of these stories on your left. The Cold War was in full force in late 1957, when Soviet Russia snatched the attention of the entire world by launching the orbital satellite Sputnik 1. U.S. President Dwight Eisenhower was not particularly interested in space exploration, but toward the end of his second term, the U.S. nonetheless embarked on a program of launching scientific instruments into space. Now that program was actually quite successful, though few people remember that today, largely because, even though the results may have been scientifically significant, they were unspectacular. Then, in 1959, the Soviets got to the moon first, with a probe called Luna 2. Soviet Premier Nikita Khrushchev aggressively taunted the United States about the USSR's high-profile achievements in space. At the time, the new National Aeronautics and Space Administration was already pretty far along with its Mercury program, a program to launch astronauts into space. But NASA had a problem. U.S. rockets kept failing, many of them spectacularly and ignominiously blowing up. In April of 1961, shortly after John F. Kennedy took office, the Soviets launched the first man into space. That was Gagarin. A month later, in May, the U.S. finally countered. NASA lobbed an astronaut, Alan Shepard, up into space. It was a suborbital mission, essentially an up-and-down flight beyond the Earth's atmosphere and immediately back. In July, NASA launched another, similar, suborbital flight, this one with Gus Grissom. Khrushchev responded by taunting the U.S. for failing to achieve orbit. He underlined his insults in August by sending the second person up into orbital space that was guaranteed of. NASA wanted to respond. John Glenn was trained and ready for an orbital flight, but NASA rockets kept failing to work and mission after mission after mission got scrubbed. It wasn't until February of 1962 that the U.S. got John Glenn into space, where he completed three orbits of the Earth in his capsule called Friendship 7, before returning. John Glenn was nothing if not an incredibly ambitious man. He was one of the most decorated military pilots to come out of World War II and the Korean War. In 1957, he became a national hero as a test pilot by establishing a new transcontinental flight speed record. With his record of extraordinary accomplishments and a level of dedication that impressed even his fellow astronauts, he reasonably thought he had the best shot at becoming the first American in space. In his new book, Mercury Rising, author Jeff Shessel reports that heading into his flight, Glenn had been deeply disappointed that NASA made him second runner-up to Shepard and Grissom. Furthermore, since Gagarin and Titov had already orbited the Earth, the ambitious Glenn knew he would never get a chance at being first at anything in space. And yet, Glenn was the one who ended up being the most famous astronaut. Why? That's what Schessel set out to determine. My fellow EE Times editor, George Leopold, is the author of a definitive biography of Mercury astronaut Gus Grissom. When George read Schessel's book, he told me, We have got to get this guy on the show. You will never believe what he found out about John Glenn's flight. Here's George leading our interview with Jeff Schessel.
1: Welcome, Jeff Schessel. Um, you, you've said uh, in some of the interviews you've been doing, and you've been doing a lot of them, that uh, what you wanted to, uh, part of the reason to do the book on uh, John Glenn was understand the significance of his flight, the flight of Friendship 7. I'm curious to know sort of how, how your understanding of the flight and its meaning evolved over the course of your research.
2: Well, thanks, George. I, I think that any of us who know about John Glenn and John Glenn's flight, which is many of us, maybe most of us, uh, understand that he was the first American to orbit the Earth. So that's significant in itself. It's good to be the first at something. And yet, as I thought about it, I, I, I wanted to understand why that in itself was so significant. He was the first American to orbit the Earth. But by that point, two Russians had already done it. He was the first American to orbit the Earth, but not the first American to in space two americans uh, as of course you know al shepard and gus grissom had already traveled to space and so why did glenn's flight loom so large i mean why was it that if you look across the 1960s really across all three programs mercury gemini apollo that the biggest news of all of them other than of course the moon landing was was glenn's and on its face, it didn't seem to me that that what Glenn had done um, was as significant as all of that. And so I wanted to understand why it looms so large in the popular imagination still 60 years later. And ultimately, I think it has to do with when it happened in the course of the space program and when it happened in the course of the Cold War. This had been a, an incredibly perilous period for the United States, a period in which The attention not only of all Americans, but across the free world was focused on whether the Americans were finally going to be able to do what the Russians had done for the first time almost a year earlier and get a human being into orbit. And if they couldn't, what did that mean? And so a lot was hanging on this flight.
1: Right, right. And I I think you've also said that uh, the success, the enormous success and the huge response to the flight of friendships haven't allowed Americans to believe again, that that we could catch up that what Kennedy had said the year before about reaching the moon by the end of the decade was now a reality, right? That's right. I
2: I think it's very difficult for us at this distance to, to realize how much uh, self doubt there was in the country. And we know not only that John Glenn orbited the earth successfully, but we know that we got to the moon. We know that we got to the moon repeatedly. And so we look back at the the space program rightly as an incredible triumph with some terrible setbacks. Of course, most notably, of course, the, the fire that, that killed Gus Grissom and two others in, in Apollo one. But on the whole, we know that the space program was a success and it's difficult to put yourself back in this moment when success was by no means guaranteed. In fact, success didn't even seem all that likely. The United States was behind in the space race from its very first moments, from 1957, when the Soviets sent Sputnik into orbit around the Earth. And we seemed to be falling farther and farther behind with every first that the Soviets achieved. And there was a whole string of them. There was a debate in this country whether we were five years behind the Soviets or whether we were 10 years behind the Soviets. And what were they going to do with that lead? Were they going to build a nuclear base on the moon? This was something that a lot of people talked about very seriously. Were they going to build a space station armed with nuclear missiles that would just sit in orbit above the United States? And so there was real doubt in this country whether we were ever going to catch up with the Soviet Union. And when Kennedy made his famous speech in May 1961 and said we should send a man to the moon by the end of the decade and and bring him safely back to earth, not that many people in the United States really believed that this was all that likely. Kennedy, I, I don't think necessarily believed it was all that likely. And so the flight of John Glenn was in a way, the moment of proof. Could we do what the Soviets had done? And the fact that we then did do it put America in the race. There was no guarantee that we were going to win it, but we were in the race, really, for the first time.
1: Right. So uh, a a key theme, and certainly one that I've been interested in, is the element of risk that was involved here. There was enormous risk, and and the astronauts had to, as test pilots, understood that and had to accept a certain amount of risk. I suspect you're familiar with a, with a fairly famous quote from John Glenn about taking the dare of the future. And actually, I, I, I'll read it. With, with Rish you gain. I've got a theory about this. People are afraid of the future of the unknown. If a man faces up to it and takes the dare of the future, he, he can have some control over his destiny. And that's an exciting idea to me, better than wa- waiting with everybody else to see what's going to happen next. I mean, that, that's a nice summary of his sort of his view of life, isn't it?
2: It, it is. I, I mean, he really felt and and he said many times that, of course, there's no progress without risk. And he was willing to to take that risk. And uh, as you noted, these guys were, were test pilots, all of them. And so they faced this every day and they had seen many of their fellow test pilots die along the way. And those who had fought in combat as Glenn did he was the most decorated combat veteran of, of the Mercury 7 had seen many pilots die over the, the course of of the war the two wars that that, that Glenn fought in so they they understood risk uh, in, a, in a very at a very deep level personal level and they were willing to accept risk. But I think where the tension came in for for Glenn and and the others was when they were being asked to take risks that they shouldn't have to. When there were decisions that were being made by NASA managers uh, that were putting them unnecessarily at risk in their view. And this was a a source of real contention between the astronauts and their managers. George, as you know, um, really all along from the very first days of the program, and actually, during the flight of, of John Glenn, it was a source mm-hmm. of tension.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's 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 really, when you look back, you realize these guys were celebrities. I mean, many people thought they were gonna they were gonna be blown up on live television. So that sort of gave them leverage in in sort of the 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 back and forth between them and management. And and this you can see this continuing throughout Project Mercury.
2: Yes, and in fact, their celebrity was starting to be seen as a as a detriment or a danger. At one point during Project Mercury, a, a writer who, who wrote often about space for the Nation, for the magazine The Nation, said that uh, they should all be pulled out of the program because the seven because they had become too famous to burn in public. That's how mm-hmm. he put it, mm-hmm. and and of course they were all famous. They were they spent years two years training before anybody actually went into space and they'd been on the cover of life magazine repeatedly. They were in newsreels. They were, they were like Mm -hmm. movie stars. And, and John Glenn was the biggest celebrity of them all. Glenn was the only one who was famous before project Mercury. He had gotten famous in 1957 as a test pilot when he had flown a crusader jet across the U S from LA to Brooklyn in three hours and 23 minutes, uh, setting a speed record and winning that victory, the bragging rights for the Navy and the Marines over the Air Force temporarily. Mm. And Glenn wound up on the front page of every newspaper in the country. He wound up in being invited for a stint on Name That Tune, um, where he did beautifully. He not only won week after week with his partner, an eight-year-old kid named Eddie Hodges, but, but he just charmed America. He charmed America. So when those astronauts were introduced to the public at that press conference in April, 1959, walked out on stage... All the reporters knew exactly who that guy was. They didn't know the other guys. They would soon, but they knew John Glenn.
1: Yeah, I think his colleague Deke Slayton said we were as green as grass. We couldn't believe all this attention, but this guy Glenn just eats this stuff up.
2: Yes, they, they all um had had words about this later. I every one of them who wrote a memoir mentions. Mentions that press Mm. conference
0: Mm.
1: in
2: similar terms. Uh, uh, Gordon Cooper described the whole thing as an ordeal. He found it to be really painful. And Glenn was making it more difficult for all of them by being so entertaining and so charming and so patriotic and so willing to talk about his family and his faith. Mm -hmm. And they sat there, and you can watch their expressions in the video. You can see it on YouTube. And they're thinking, "Is is this the game I'm supposed to play now? Yeah. And and At some of them,
1: the beginning of sound bites, right?
2: That's right. That's right. And some of them were really unable to play that game and um
0: and and none of them wanted to.
1: Mhm. Mhm.
0: So one of the things I was fascinated about was uh you, the two of you had just mentioned the tension between management and the astronauts um about NASA making decisions for them. Um One of the elements of that is, is that uh, there was a large contingent among NASA management who wanted to automate the whole thing. And the astronauts, famous as they were, were going to be passengers, essentially. Um, You know, try to stay awake and and don't touch anything. Um, And these were test pilots who, you know, were trained uh, and probably were naturally inclined to always be in control. Um, that was part of the tension, too. And I was hoping I could get you to talk about that dynamic.
2: You know, um, a, a wonderful uh, gentleman who, who George and I both know, his name is Robert Vos. And Bob Voss was a Navy psychologist who helped come up the list of criteria by which you would choose an astronaut. And then he helped to choose the Mercury seven. And, and, and Bob, I just, in fact, saw Bob yesterday. He's a wonderful storyteller. And one of the things that, that, um, that, that, that Bob had had said is that they had done a, a a test on test pilots to uh, check their anxiety level, which they measured by how much their palms were pers perspiring. And they were just cool as cucumbers until the co-pilot took the controls. And as soon as somebody else took the controls, they began to stress out. They wanted to be in control. That was how they stayed calm. So you take guys like this and then you put them in a little can and you tell them they can't touch anything. And it is antithetical to their sense of self and also their sense of how they can uh, get back safely and fulfill the mission. And, And I think that it's again, this is one of those things that's difficult to to reconstruct, but it was it was fun to do so. The sense of concern about what would happen to a human being when you sent them into space. The list of concerns in the 1950s was was longer than you can imagine. I mean, they thought that the G forces would crush their organs. They thought that the G forces would black, would cause them to black out, and they would be uh, incapable of doing anything in space. That it, that something about the experience would cause their nerve endings to fire wildly and randomly, so they would be literally out of control. These were all the sorts of things that the physiologists uh, were 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 considering as real dangers of of spaceflight, and so. Some, some of uh, the, the uh, engineers and others and, and some of the physicians uh, had, a, had, an, had an idea in the late 1950s that if you're gonna have to send a human being into space, you should sedate them before they go. You should shoot them up with sedatives so they were too out of it to do anything because they might freak out and flip the wrong switch and, uh, and, and, and bring themselves to an untimely end. And so these were the sorts of concerns that fed into what you described, Brian, which is this feeling that the only safe way to do this was on autopilot. And if decisions had to be made, they would be made on the ground and not by this vulnerable and possibly increasingly insane person who was up in this capsule more than a... Insanity was actually another fear that they had, that they would go mad from the isolation of it.
1: And Bob Voss also uh, notes that there was reliability testing of course on everything and one element was the astronaut himself he was part of a system so they came to him and said bob we want you to you know do an analysis of w- w- whether the astronaut itself uh, himself will fail in this case so
2: that yeah, that's right yeah. as test pilots their role had been to take this experimental aircraft, whatever it is, and to push it to its limits, that expression that we know, know, pushing the envelope. And they were supposed to see when this machine would break down and under what conditions. Well, in Project Mercury, it wasn't just the capsule that was the experimental uh, equipment, they were. And the question was, how much can a man take? What are the outer limits of what a human being is able to experience in spaceflight? So they were part of the test.
1: Yeah, right. The, the 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 first thing was you wanted to get a flight, and the second thing is you didn't want to screw up. So that leads to uh, going off of Brian's autopilot question. One of the revelations in the book, Jeff, about uh, you know you 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 chronicle in great detail the many delays that Glenn had to go through before he actually launched in February 1962 and then there's of course i think most of our readers and listeners know about the uh, the the uh, heat shield problem which you discuss as well but there was something else that happened involving the autopilot and uh, Jeff has talked to the people who were actually there and had to inform John Glenn that he goofed. <laughs> this was
0: wild. This was really something to read. I, I'm, I'm excited to hear you. I, I'm excited to have you tell people about this.
2: Well, I, and and I should begin by George publicly expressing my gratitude to you uh, for for introducing me to the to the individuals who, who told this story and that I was able to to share in the book. Uh, the the problems with the autopilot were were one of the the dramas of of John Glenn's flight, and as I mentioned, uh, the autopilot had always been unpopular with the astronauts for the reasons we've been discussing. But it had also been really been problematic. And I found in the Glenn archives a, a note card where he had scrawled a, a series of notes for himself as he headed into a meeting about the flight plan and a lot of this had to do with his complaints his concerns about the autopilot and he noted that there had been problems It says problems on every flight uh, including the flight uh, of the of the chimpanzee ham there had just been problems always with the it was called the automatic stabilization and control system the ascs and it was one of the reasons again why glenn and the other astronauts wanted to be able to fly this thing for themselves And so here he is, he's in orbit, um, fast forwarding a little bit. And at the end of his, his first turn around the earth, uh, the autopilot seems to be going awry and the the capsule starts to, it seems like a car skating out of alignment, which caused the thrusters automatically to fire and to kick it back into, into line. And then it would happen again. And the thrusters would kick in again and it was wasting fuel. So Glenn took it over. He flew it manually under something that's called fly-by-wire. And for the reasons discussed, on a certain level, Glenn didn't mind that so much. Um, uh, he had always wanted to fly it. But the problem gets worse and worse. Periodically, he puts it back on I- autopilot to see if it's working again. And, and it, it's just getting worse and worse over the course of the flight. And it's drifting more and more out of alignment. So it no longer becomes an option for him. Well, again, fast-forwarding. Uh, On the ground, there are a couple of uh, uh, brilliant engineers, uh, a guy named Jerry Roberts and a guy named Bob Shep. And among other things, they had responsibility for the ASCS. So they were the experts on the system. And uh, after the flight, as NASA's trying to figure out what went wrong with the autopilot and how it can be fixed for the future, these are the guys who look into it and they have a hunch and they figure it out pretty quickly and they 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 run some calculations and it all adds up what it it had to do with was the desire of the astronauts to face forward when they flew you know they were supposed to fly essentially going backwards with the blunt end of the capsule the heat shield facing forward in case there was some kind of emergency that required them to re-enter very quickly they'd be better positioned that way Um, but it's not as much fun, frankly, to face backwards. It's like, imagine yourself sitting in a, in a car on a family trip and facing out of the back window. They wanted to face forward. So the engineers made an allowance for this, that they could they could essentially spin the capsule around and get a good look for a little while, and then they'd have to spin it back. But the, the, the correction that was built into the capsule had always assumed that it was flying heat shield forward. And so they, the engineers put in a little switch that they were supposed to flip, when uh, to to flip to rearrange the the correction. This is not a technical way of putting it, and I, <laughs> I recognize I'm talking to an audience of experts here, um, but it, it was to compensate for the fact that the capsule was facing forward. Um, well, Glenn forgot to flip the switch, and it became clear again to these engineers that the drift directly corresponded with what would happen if you failed to flip, flip the switch. So it was, it was human error. It was pilot error. And, uh, they, um, they drew straws, these two guys, which one was going to have to tell the national hero, the world's <laughs> hero, John Glenn, that he had screwed up. And so Bob Shep drew the short straw. And, uh, after the, the celebration at Cape Canaveral, they pulled glenn into a side room and they said uh you know john we've been running the numbers on this and we think we've figured figured this out can we can we show something to you and he said sure and so bob begins to explain uh what they found and the sentence hasn't even left his mouth when glenn realizes exactly where this is going and he says oh crap I forgot to flip the switch, didn't I? Or,
1: or words to that effect. <laughs> words to that effect. <laughs> um,
2: maybe some other four-letter word, and uh, and so they they had a good laugh about it. And, and you know, decades later, uh, Jerry and, and and Bob really appreciated the humility uh, of Glenn in that moment. Um, he had no trouble admitting uh, that it was him. Although I will say that then, uh, NASA went to work in protecting. Glenn, and they never called him out on this, Uh, there was a a report that was written, many reports written about the mission and what could be learned from it. And it is extremely, exquisitely vague on this question of what went wrong with the (laughs) autopilot. And it says, almost in passing, better pilot training may address this in the future. And uh, never clarifies why that would be the case.
1: Human error. as In your memorable phrase, the everyman superman, right, Jeff?
2: That's right. That's right. This would be the uh, everyman side of it, I guess. Maybe not the superman side.
1: Right. I thought the other important insight in your book is that this tremendous response to Glenn's flight sort of illustrates what you argue is uh, the American public's desire to be seen by the rest of the world in the image of John Glenn, hardworking, resourceful, patriotic. I mean that that was that to me was a key insight in the book.
2: Well thanks, George. I, I think one of the things that that um that really stood out for me, stands out for me about John Glenn is that he represented at the same time what people saw as the best of the American past. And also America's future. He represented these small-town, traditional values that, for many, you know, especially white middle-class Americans, were an idealized kind of America. That was really who he was, and and they could tell, and they had been watching him for years that that this was the authentic uh, John Glenn. Uh, this fidelity to to family, this deep uh, religious faith, and. Um, all of the values associated with a tiny little town like New Concord, Ohio. Um, And yet at the same time, he couldn't be written off as a product of the past because this is the guy in the silver spacesuit who's orbiting the earth. And uh, he was one of the the handful of individuals where I guess there were seven of them who were speeding America literally toward this future that was almost impossible to imagine. It was so fantastical. And so Glennon, in in all of these ways, and also his military service had a lot to do with it. Um, His humility had a lot to do with it. He seemed to represent the best of America. So it wasn't just that America was now in the space race for real. That was a big part of it. But it was that, um, you know, it's that cliche. It couldn't happen to a better guy. I mean, you know, this 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 is this is exactly who most Americans wanted representing them before the eyes of the world. And it really was before the eyes of the world, the, the world was watching with acute interest. The world was cheering. And after the flight, when uh USIA, the U S information agency sent the capsule, on a tour of the world, um, the fourth,
1: the fourth orbit, the the fourth
2: orbit, as it was known. And, and they took it around and they showed it to, to crowds everywhere from Egypt to India, to, to Western Europe, people waited in line in, in intense heat for hours upon hours to, to, to see this. And they were interested in American technology, but they, they also had, um, they knew, they knew John Glenn and uh and 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 so he really was for for many a perfect representative of uh who they wanted america to be in this moment
1: yeah and i think the other great piece of investigative reporting on your part jeff was you did talk to his children david and uh the daughter lynn lynn yeah that that took uh a lot of digging and a lot of letter writing but but uh uh, you know, they were, they were fortunate to get you to write their dad's biography.
2: Well, thank you. I felt very fortunate that uh, they were willing to give me the time of day. You know, there's been a lot of interest going back 60 years in their, in their dad. And, and, um and I think at various times, maybe they felt all, all talked out, but they, they did agree to speak with me. And, and I, I, I had wonderful conversations with both of them. They were very forthcoming, very reflective they told me stories I hadn't heard anywhere else before, stories that really only they knew. And of course they have this great love for their dad and, and what he achieved, but they also understood that he was a human being. I mean, one of the most powerful things that, that, that David Glenn told me, and this is in the epilogue in the book, is that when John Glenn, at this point, uh, nearing the end of his fourth term as a Senator from, from Ohio and in the late 1990s, when he announced to his family that he wanted to go back into space and that he was going to take a ride on the space shuttle. David's response, really all of their response, was essentially, not again. Why would you put us through again? This had been uh, a painful experience for them. Um, as David said, uh, you know, the world is, is watching, and they're watching on television to see whether, as, as David said, frankly, whether that thing is going to explode with my dad right there on top of it and i think we forget you know what what the experience must be like for the family
1: yeah right so uh, what well, one more thing i want to get your take on and and this goes back to the the, the otherwise glowing interv- uh, review you got in the new york times but the author professor at the Uni- university of texas raises the issue of of was this all worth it and i would argue that those uh, twenty-five billion dollars in nineteen nineteen sixties dollars were worth every penny when we got to see the Earth from from the Moon. That was the key thing. That was uh, to me. That was the big payoff. What do you think?
2: Well, I I, I certainly I not only think it was worth it um uh, in terms of the human experience on this planet and and above it, but I also think that. There really on a certain level, there was no choice, which Kennedy recognized. Eisenhower inched up to accepting uh, his own lack of, of uh, options uh, and and had to embrace a more robust effort in space than he wanted to. And the same thing happened for Kennedy, that this national commitment was a recognition of what space symbolized to, to all the world. And uh, as Kennedy said during the campaign in 1960, to be second in space is to be second in the eyes of the world in science and technology, and in military power, and in the struggle between freedom and totalitarianism. So there was no opting out. And if you're going to opt in, you've got to try to win. So on a certain level, there was no there was no abdicating responsibility here. and uh, and I think that, it is difficult then to quantify the, the value of that in billions of dollars. And, and rightly, I think a lot of Americans then and a lot of Americans since have said, essentially, well, that's exciting and everything. But what did we get for all these billions of dollars? And you can point to Teflon and other things. And, you know, that may or may not be exciting <laughs> to people. Um, but of course, it was larger than that. And um, it, it was not just a, a battle for, for prestige. Um, but a battle for credibility in the world. And a lot depends on U.S. credibility in the world.
0: I wanted to look forward because what I read in your book seems to be getting recapitulated today a little bit. Um, You know, we talk at the time there was talk about, well, why put any living thing up in up in space? Why why manned exploration as opposed to sending up instruments that could do the job as well or better? Um, I think you explained at the time that Khrushchev, in particular, of all the characters in your book seemed to be so very keenly aware of the public relations value of what was going on. And, and others began to, to come around to that. And then today we see, you know, Elon Musk talking about colonizing Mars and, and other people just saying there's no point to that. What's, what's, what's the point of actually putting people on Mars? It seems to be the same argument playing out again to me. And I'm wondering, do you feel the same way? And, and, and what's your perspective on that?
2: It has always been easier to get people interested in and excited about human spaceflight than it has about all of the other things that we can do without human beings in in space. I mean, it's pretty exciting to watch this this helicopter ingenuity do what it's doing on Mars, and that's great. But imagine a helicopter with a pilot in it on Mars, <laughs> and I, and I think you you see the difference. And so is there an element of public relations in this? Absolutely. When you look at someone like uh, Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos is going to send himself into space next month, and there's a public relations uh, aspect uh, to that as well. And and yet, I, I think that human spaceflight is... Uh, it's it's irresistible, ultimately. It defies the, the need for a clear rationale. I'm not sure that there's any clearer rationale today for scientific reasons to send a human being all that distance to Mars with all the difficulty and the expense and the danger that that entails than there was to to send a human being to the moon in in the 1960s. There may be less of a rationale. And yet it is going to be hard to resist the impulse that Mars is the next frontier. And if we can do it, we're going to do it. And uh, you're going to have billionaires like Elon Musk or Jeff Bezos or, the, or Richard Branson or the next billionaires in line who are going to drive this forward over the next the next decades because they can. And, you know, it's it's Kennedy's speech at Rice in 1962. We do these things because not because they're easy, but because they're hard. Um, You know, why do we climb? Why do we climb a mountain? Why does why does Rice play Texas? Um <laughs> And the Kennedy Kennedy got it. Uh, that wasn't a speech he could have given earlier in his presidency, but by 1962, he was ready to put it in those terms.
1: Yeah. What's over the next hill, right? So Jeff Schessel's book is Mercury Rising, John Glenn, John Kennedy, and the New Battleground of the Cold War. Uh, highly recommended. Um, Jeff, thank appreciate you. appreciate your time. Best of luck with the book. And we're, we'll be anxious to read your next book. Thanks,
2: George. Thanks, Brian. Appreciate being here.
1: The
0: lead interviewer in this segment was George Leopold. He's an EE Times editor and the author of Calculated Risk, The Supersonic Life and Times of Gus Grissom, published by Purdue University Press. George and Jeff and I just discussed the differing opinions people have about manned spaceflight that go back to the very beginning of space exploration. NASA's latest program is called Artemis. In mythology, by the way, Artemis is Apollo's sister. In the last 10 years, several unmanned probes have been sent to the Moon from the U.S., Japan, Europe, China, India, and Israel. The Artemis program aims to return to the Moon with the first manned missions since the Apollo program that ended in the 1970s. The first Artemis test flight will be flown by a crash test dummy. That concludes this week's episode of The Weekly Briefing. Thank you for listening. This podcast is available on all the major podcast platforms, but if you get to us via our website at eetimes.com slash podcasts, you'll find a transcript along with links to the stories we mentioned. The Weekly Briefing is produced by E.E. Times. It was engineered by Taylor Marvin and Greg McCray at Coop Studios. The segment producer was Katie Huss. I'm Brian Santo. See you next week.